My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) It's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. It's getting hard. My parents feel that it's the signs of time. I don't know because everything is just fine. This episode is all about hair, but don't think that means it's frivolous. Today, fashion and hairdressing live in the same world, along with makeup artistry, art direction, photography. The hairstylist on a shoot, for example, is just as important as the stylist or model or photographer. But the art of cutting hair is more fundamental and, of course, more universally experienced than those other disciplines. Grooming is an animal urge and an ancient art. There were razors found in the Bronze Age and in ancient Egypt. In the Middle Ages, barbers also served as surgeons and dentists, which I just found out courtesy of Google. So they were literally engaged in wellness and healing. These days, it's more about counselling, though, isn't it? The intimacy of sitting in the hairdresser's or barber's chair, the human contact. I mean, who hasn't told their hairdresser secrets? But today's episode is about way more than a good haircut. It's a story of addiction and redemption. The journey of an extraordinary man who, with his scissors by his side, found vocation, changed his life and set himself to task doing good in the world. We're going to meet Nazir Sabani, a.k.a. The Streets Barber, a Melbourne-based barber who skateboards around the city, giving free haircuts and shaves to homeless people as part of his clean-cut, clean-start movement. Naz calls the Street Barber Project a place where people who believe in the fundamental goodness of human beings can come to find stories, ideas, hope, community and inspiration in order to go out and serve in their own way. Naz says of his work, I love people and I love cutting hair. This is my passion. This is what makes me happy. The joy I see in a person after getting groomed brings me joy. I used to be a drug addict, he says, and I didn't care about anybody else. Now I'm sober. Serving others is the best high I've ever felt. You can follow his journey online at thestreetsbarber.com and you can follow Naz on Instagram, which is just at thestreetsbarber. So this episode is about profound stuff. It's about spirituality. It's about responsibilities to our fellow humans and what it means to have access to the stuff that you and I take for granted, a shower, a shave, basic grooming. It's about homelessness. According to Homelessness Australia, on any given night, one in 200 people here are homeless. And it's also about how we as a society view that 
It's about purpose, it's about dignity, and we also talk about vanity in social media and about tattoos. Naz has a lot of those, and about being good to your mum. <laughs> we do discuss drug addiction, and it is a bit sweary, so if that sort of thing offends your ears, you have been warned. But this is a wonderful episode and an amazing story to hear. As always, thank you for listening and for supporting the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. If you're loving the show, please share on social media. I'm at Mrs. Press on Instagram and Twitter. And also, I'd be super grateful if you would consider leaving a review in iTunes. What's up, baby? Do you want to check if it's recording? How do I do that? You do that again. Oh, shit. <laughs> you actually were serious. All right. Well, you caught me off guard. I was a freestyle. Check it. Check it. Microphone, check it. The crowd went wild when Nas came to wreck it. Stop it. I, I, I did. Well, are you doing it now? I just stopped it, though, but I, I can go off. I got no gap, but I got a cool hat. And let me tell you something. I like to rap. I got my dog on my lap. That's a tat tat. When I came into the barbershop before, yeah. it dawned on me that I've never walked into a barbershop, and it was such a testosterone environment. Like, it was friendly, but it was like, whoa. It yeah. Was all men. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I was like, wow, this is alien to me because this is a male space. And then I was remembering that you were actually trained by a woman. I found that interesting. Interesting as hell. And uh -huh. that's why I have so much love for barbers that are females. I'm not going to call them female barbers because I think that kind of separates it a little bit. They're barbers, first and foremost. By adding female before that, you're taking away the most important term. In, in the, actually, you know what? I think that female is the most important term. And I'm but you're adding a label. You're basically yeah, saying the exactly. label comes before the skill. And for me, to be able to pick up a craft where you're essentially doing your work on men, I figured like, and you yourself are not a man. like So you don't know the ins and outs of what a beard feels like or what a... Do you know what I mean? But be able do you know to what? I find this so interesting because I think about it from a fashion perspective because so many designers and famous couturiers are, are blokes. A lot of them are gay men, but they're men and always designing for women. And yeah. that's, a, that's a similar thing. Like There we go. They're not, for the most part, putting on the clothes and understanding what it feels to be in the clothes. So Some of them maybe. Yeah. So but it doesn't see, stop yeah. them being able to do wonderful work. Absolutely not. For me, I know this maybe sounds like bias but the respect i have for a barber that's a female killing it in such a misogynistic game you know what i mean is it misogynistic um your your mentor originally yeah. what's her name summer electric brain summer summer is the summer, name of the salon yeah. right summer salon such a chick's word yeah no but the name, name of the, of the shop <laughs> name of the shop electric brain barber shop her name was summer and she was the biggest badass known to men and in her lieutenant country was another female but then we also had another guy working with me mason so the three of them were like my mentors summer was like mrs miyagi though for me she whipped me into shape where you're working now on their website this is how they talk about barbershops which i quite loved and i wrote it down in times past the barbershop was a social club a place where gentlemen hmm, gentlemen could gather and discuss ideas share a drink and sharpen up under one roof what ideas do you discuss in there I liked that what idea. What ideas? Yeah. Man, it goes, it depends. Especially in the back room where I am. Because myself and one of my, I would say one of my closest and dearest friends, Eamon, who is the apprentice, but now is like cutting. He's, he's the rookie now of the shop. Him and I run the back room. We call it the Dirty South. 
we kind of made it our own place because like there was two chairs everyone was always just arguing trying to figure out stuff but for us we just have our spots back there and we don't have to ever move because that's where we work the guys in the front they're always switching around except for boss boss gets the main chair but uptown is the front room no one likes it uptown it's too pretentious because they're in the window yeah it's, it's just, like a performance you know what i mean it's too you know the boss is there professional like, atmosphere but you step into the back at dirty south man you, it's, it's raw and it's away from everything so we know exactly who's there we can talk about whatever we want to talk about people actually come now it's so funny they just sit and just sit down like you missed it when you came in there's only two people cutting but how many people were in the back room so many people exactly like they just i walked to hang in there out. i was like this is like a club yeah. it's like full of people everyone looks like a cool hipster because it's in greville street but yeah. it's like all these guys hanging like yeah, it was a thing i felt like I'd, I'd stumbled into this like secret society that i wasn't part of <laughs> uptown uptown though i don't feel like people were hanging i think people were just coming there to do the work and cut dirty south is where people were hanging and I'm the mayor of the Dirty South, and Eamon's the sheriff. That's what we discussed, self-appointed positions. So I started to be a history teacher. So once a week, I talk about a different time of history, and I, and I just break it down for the client, Eamon, and anybody else. Eamon loves to hear. He loves to learn about it. So, you know, and that's what I love doing. Really? Yeah. And then like, Eamon, what are you talking about? Like the Renaissance? Like last, last time, I talked about Kubilai, Genghis Khan's grandson. There is nothing cooler than being a barber in Melbourne in 2017. There's like five shops on your street that are full of hipster barbers. True. It's let's, kind of a cool thing to be right it now. It is, it is, right now. But I, let's let's just say I, I want to be a barber before the hype. When you were a little kid in history class, as opposed to your time spent training to be a teacher, what kind of kid were you? So you grew up in Japan. Fuck yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Japan. Until you were seven, then you moved to Vancouver, is that right? Or yeah, Vancouver, Where? Canada. Oh, well, I was in Hawaii for a few months, and then we went to Vancouver. What were you like as a kid? Paint me a picture. Oh, I was a mischievous rat. Yeah, I was. I was always that kid who stayed behind school and was always. He has full potential. He just doesn't. He's not whatever. I think I was ahead of my time. You know what I mean? I just. I wasn't. I wasn't a sheep. I was the youngest, but I got to hang out with my brothers. They were all like. 17, 14, and I was 11, and I got to hang out with them, you know, and they would take me out, and I would be the youngest kid by yonks. My middle brother was already one of the youngest kids there, but then they would bring me along too, and I just got to hang out with them, you know. I remember school nights, and I got to just roll around with my brothers, you know, and, and their friends just going places. Was it a good childhood? Yeah, it was the best. It was amazing. And then my parents separated. When my eldest brother went away to uni, and my middle brother was just involved with a lot of different things, and we had to move homes. And then at that point, that's where it kind of just... But your dad lost all his money, right? Oh, everything. It was the best experience of our family's lives, though. Why? Because look at who we are now. <laughs> I've read that about you before, and I've seen you say it before, that you've got this way of looking at adversity that you can then reframe to say, well, that's how we got where we got. But you couldn't have always had that. Where'd you learn that? I got that through... The constant reassurance and positivity of my parents throughout really? the times that I was going through. Yeah, absolutely. Think of how many families could have just crumbled because of that. And, you know, it was hard when my mom was selling her wedding jewelry to pay for a month's mortgage. And my dad was literally giving his last gold coins in his in his wallet so I didn't have to ask my friends for a drink or, like, you know, a bag of chips because he felt so ashamed that he couldn't give me everything. And you would think that's the worst would happen. But, like, look at what the family's up to now, man. Like, my brother is doing his PhD at Melbourne Uni. He coaches a lot of South Sydney's refugees, man. Like, that's his thing. He helps these kids that are just subject to just a lot of bullshit, probably, for us in society and growing up in the, in the flats and stuff and commissioning housing projects. 
and these kids are future NBA prospects and he's helping these kids do that. You know what I mean? My middle brother's in Israel right now with his wife volunteering. They just had a child. And, I, and I'm just so grateful to be a, you know, a member of this family. My mom's a social worker. She And she's a full-time caretaker of my grandma who's senile and old and basically dying. Obviously, you come from a family who have got this whole idea of to be a useful member of society, you need to give back. And I know that, that part of that's from religion. Can you the talk Baha'i me through faith. that? Yeah, yeah. The forefront of our family's moral influence is the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith is a religion that believes in all religions. I know, so I read this and I have to admit, I was woefully ignorant. I didn't really understand what it meant or where it came from. So that's it's the, beautiful the youngest thing about, religion in the world, right? Yeah, or the youngest big religion in the world. Yeah, you could say the, the youngest, I think, organized world religion. And it's based on this idea that no other religion is invalid. Absolutely. That's amazing. I mean, if only the whole world would yeah, get involved absolutely. in this, Because right? if it wasn't for the... Think of this, okay? This is the best analogy I can give you. It's like an iPhone. So God being Apple. And then each religion is like a different generation iPhone, but you couldn't have the new generation without the old generation. Now, it's nothing saying that you can't have an iPhone 5, even though we're in the time of iPhone 7s. If you're happy with an iPhone 5, use an iPhone 5. iPhone 6 just has a little bit of a tweak to it. But at the end of the day, it's the still same makeup does that make sense and that's what it is every single so, religion has the same spiritual message you were raised in tolerance absolutely what about this idea of service i know that the word unity is strong in that religion huge and i know yeah. that you've got it tattooed big on your back so i got so many tattoos on my face what have you actually got i've got junior my nickname is junior line because my dad's name is young line i've got oneness that i got in israel because oneness essentially is like a very Baha'i concept. It's oneness of mankind, oneness of religion, oneness of people. I've got two arrows. It was just a gap fill when I was in Russia just for a laugh. I've got my parents' names on my jawline. i got my brother's names on my eyelids. i got a sword in my ear. And then i got the scissors, the cutthroat, and the heart around my eyes. The heart was a cover-up of the three dots, which is just, it could resemble gang stuff. And I just was like, man, what the hell am I doing? Who am I representing? Can you tell us the story of the tattoo that you have on your chest, though? You have a tattoo that's about imprisoning the self. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The one on the, it's on my stomach, actually. It's just two hands holding onto bars and you can't see the person's face. But it's the greatest prison is the prison of self. And it's a beautiful concept through a philosophy of the Baha'i writings. And it's the greatest prison is the prison of self. And once one is released from the prison of self, he is indeed free. So like, it doesn't matter if someone can be in prison, you know what I mean? If they're free in mind, then they're free completely. Because they can be in the complete open, vast desert, you know what I mean? But if they're just living in their head, then they're stuck, they're a prisoner of that mind, of the body of the soul. So I just figured, you know what I mean? like. If the greatest prison is the prison of self, my body's a prison. I just kept with that. And sometimes when I'm like, you know, just too involved with my thoughts and I'm just becoming too anxious about a certain thing, I just always look at the stomach. I'm like, man, my body's a prison, eh? I can, and then like it kind of steps me out and just reminds me, okay, I can step out. To serve mankind is to serve God. So it's if you love God, then you will love your fellow man. And it's, it's interesting because like, you know, and rather than going around and like teaching people and telling people, oh, join us, this and that. It's just like, just serve and just be a good member of society. Let people know you're Baha'i without having you have to say anything. 
That's what it's all about. So don't even tell people you're Baha'i. Do it by actions. Let people know you're Baha'i just because the way you are. You have to be different just the way you carry yourself. That's what it's all about. That's probably why a lot of people don't know about the Baha'i faith. They're like, oh, what is that? It's because like, we're not walking around with name tags saying, oh, I'm Baha'i. I just try to like, rep it up because people are like, oh, always so influenced. And I'm so inspired by this religion. Were you as a kid? Did you come to it later? I did. Then I took a step back when I got, obviously, going through my drug addiction. Which ended up happening when my middle brother and this adversity and all this stuff came across. And then I was just hanging out with some, like, rough kids. And then, obviously, some Because of them you're were, a free-range kid because everyone was busy worrying about their own stuff that was going down. I guess so. And my mom was too busy trying to save families that it was hard for her to come back home after a long shift to make sure I'm okay, too. She did her best, though. She was the best mother at the end of the day. Like, did everything she could to ensure. She also wanted to put food on the table and also a roof over her head. It was my stupid idiot ass that decided to go out and just hang out with the rough kids, the juvie kids, you know, the drug dealers of the, the area. And then before you knew it, like, it just hit it. And then, like, I tried it. And I was the only member of my family that ever hit a substance. Tried what? Just weed for the first time. Like, and like then at what age? 17. I was late. I was a late bloomer. Let's not call it blooming. No, I would say it's blooming because, once again, it's like, it's what maybe now. So it was, my, it was like, I got to grow like that. At what point did it become out of control? Ooh, as soon as I tried it, <laughs> let's be honest, like I started getting bad and then I started shooting coke when I was like 22. One is not enough, a thousand is, too much. how do we say that? One's too much, a thousand is not enough. Mm. Although like I lost and I wasn't really practicing the faith or any of the, the my duties, you know, I still had this this feeling of a higher power, which I like to call God just to help it out. People are always like, so like, Ew, God. It's just like, okay, let's call it energy. <laughs> let's call it a higher power. Let's call it the universe. It's just people are just so weird. Now they need to separate what this word is. I get a bit hung up about religion because I always feel that religion is so divisive. Like this idea that most, not most, but look at me, I'm prejudiced, right? Because I'm going, most religion. But that I do have a fear of kind of religious doctrine. Yeah, absolutely. That, and it comes from my family because I was brought up to be like, look at religion causing all the wars. <laughs> yeah, that's funny though, but they say that. And the, if it's not religion, it's been borders. If it's not been borders, it's been tribes. If it hasn't been tribes, it's been money. Genghis if it hasn't Khan. been money. Yeah, there we go. And there's no religion then. Like there was like ideas of spirituality, but that's the thing. It's just those people are always going to try to find something for something. If they're going to actually follow religion, religion should abolish war. The fundamental pillar of all religions is unity. Absolutely. It's forbidden. Islam means peace, right? So and if it's haram to kill anybody, especially commit suicide, how does a religion actually do that? And you know what's really annoying? People keep repeating, oh, it's not the religion, it's the people. It's just <laughs> like, yeah, we all know that, man. But it's just it's just sheep way of thinking. It's not ignorance. It's just a sheep it's way. It's an excuse to fear the other by using labels to say, you're not like us because we're this, we're that. We're the blue people, you're the pink people. But so did you lose God? No, of course not. Of course not. I lost myself though. But amidst losing myself, I never lost God because I always knew there was something there. And it was funny because in the hardest times, I'd always pray. I always knew, I always knew because it's, it's hard to just lose God. During this time though, you were functioning. I mean, you were, you were studying a degree to be a teacher, is that right? Yeah. I got into opiates and opium and stuff like that when it was holidays and then I stole the car and I was under house arrest for a bit and I was just in the beginning of... You did of, what? I stole a car on my way to get opiates. Anyway, so like the first few semesters of my last year 
was when I was on basically under house arrest because I stole the car and everything. And, and then I kind of like couldn't get back into opiates because I knew how serious it was and I was so addicted. And that's when I started getting into coke. I almost died from shooting one night. And then one day I told my mom, mom, I need money for school. I need money for this. I need money for that. And she just goes, Nass, I don't have anything. And I'm like, mom, mom, hurry up. What the hell are you trying to do? What? I'm like, just like being a conniving piece of shit. You know what I mean? Just manipulative bastard, drug addict, fiend. And um, she was just so scared. And she went and just got like a couple dollars from her purse or whatever. And then I just like called my friend. I'm like, yo, let's got something. And I, I just knew if I started off with a little bit of money, I was always able to find my way. And he comes to pick me up. My mom's out the front of the door. She's like trying to block and say, please don't go, please don't go. And I'm like, I just push her out of the way, man. I'll never forget it. I'm like, get out of my way, I need to go. And when I do that, she hits the closet. And then as I'm walking away, I just hear a whimper. And that's my mom, you know, just, it was traumatizing. Sometimes I just like break down just thinking of it. But for me, just like that woke me up. And if it wasn't for that, I think I would have still been in this drug-induced rampage. And when I heard that whimper, I was too much of a coward to look back. And then like I looked down on my forearms and they were black and blue. And then I started thinking like, I've got nothing going for me. I, don't, I lost my girl, I lost my friends, I lost my mental health. I'm not even going to school anymore. I have nothing going for me. What have I become? And then I go into my friend's car and I'm like, bro, I think I need to go to rehab. He goes, yeah. <laughs> And then two weeks later, I admitted myself to a rehab center and I haven't touched drugs since. What did you learn there? Why do you think you came out sober and have stuck at it? Uh, One of two things. I've replaced an addiction with cutting. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I love that with all my heart. And B, every day, I make sure I say an intense prayer asking for guidance from this higher power. I mean, I laughed when you said I've replaced addiction with cutting hair, but only because it's so unusual but it's not funny it's great no I it's, mean, it's unusual expe- but i mean yeah. like there's look at the endorphins you can get from giving a nice ass fade Ooh. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah dude fire up like imagine writing a really nice article you know think of that you know what i mean or like being able to just yeah just execute something awesome it's, but it's, it's to art. do with knowing that you you got it is it? I mean, for me, it's like if you, if you I feel I don't know, good just about having that eye, just knowing that you're going to create something and like seeing the, the end product, that's a high right there. It's just like, oh, come on. Like you're so determined to do it. And then once you're finished, you're like, yes. Like the worst feelings I can get is when I don't give a good cut. The best feelings I can get is when I give a good cut. But then also seeing the joy and the happiness and the confidence within someone else from doing what I do is so awesome. Such a rush. So it just made sense to for me to start doing it for people who needed it. You cut hair as a kid. You used to cut your friend's hair. All the time. But never thought it was a serious career? No way. They'd always tell me, I want to just be a barber, just do this. And I thought they were undermining my capacity. Pissed me off. But I was just insecure. I didn't really look at the power of what cutting hair could actually Did you do. think it wasn't a serious professional thing because of why? Because my family. Like my extended family. Man, I got UN officials in my family. Diplomats. CEOs, businessmen, philanthropists up the wazoo. And yet, it sort of depends what your measure of success is though, doesn't it? Because if you're able to do something human for someone else and you're able to impart even a fraction of dignity or self-confidence to someone by your skill, why isn't that just as successful as being a guy in a boardroom? Well, that's the thing. I didn't see it saw like that and that's what I'm saying, my insecurity. Mm. But once my family pushed me into this career, 
And once I looked at doing what I'm going to do with 100% integrity and in the spirit of service, that's when it didn't make a difference. And that's when I found the confidence within myself. Also sobering up and staying strong and committed also helped me get that confidence. Do you ever get scared that you're going to relapse? Yes. And that's why I'm not relapsing. They say that one of the biggest reasons for relapse is overconfidence. And I know for a fact that I'm always going to be an addict. And that I can't just do it casually. Once too much, a thousand is not enough. And it's that fear that's embedded within me that keeps me sober. You moved to Melbourne shortly after you came out of rehab. I did come out of rehab. I was trying to rekindle a relationship with my ex-girlfriend at the time. My brother randomly just said, you'll come to Melbourne, you'll love it. And he was here studying? He was here, he finished his master's. He was teaching at a school here, at an elementary school. And then I came here when he was doing that. And then he's done his PhD in the past two years, three years. And did you think, I'm going to be a barber, or did that? No, so it was like a few months before that I had gone to rehab. Right before my coke addiction was getting really bad, I had a moment of clarity for like one week. I had to go to another city for my brother's wedding. And I was there and I was just basically forced to withdraw from drugs because I didn't have anything around me. It was just a very intimate family time. And my family sat me down. My oldest brother, who's now here, he's just like, bro, we love the fact that you want to study. We really think you should be a barber. And this is after six years of just repetitive persistence of do this, do this. And I was like, I need to finish school first. Stop putting me, and then my brother kind of just like sat me down and kind of gave his points and his reasonings. And I I guess it was the moment of clarity that I had because I wasn't, I was like one of some of the longest periods that I didn't, wasn't on drugs. And I was able to look at it in a different way. And he just kind of like, he made it really sound enticing, you know, and cool. And I was like, I guess I could do it. You know, maybe I should. It's like, I guess when I finish uni, I'll look into it. And then that planted the seed. And my parents are like, man, just do it. Just did, do did this all come out of the fact that you had cut your friend's hair and you were happy when you did it or you were good at it? Like, why? No, I was good. They thought I was good. They thought I had a, a talent. They thought I had a natural talent, a niche of some sort. I would just do it with no, with no training. I would use beard trimmers and kitchen scissors, right? And so I just did it. And then my brother would get it. My dad would ask for a cut. My friends would just come to the house. It was always constantly filled with hair. My mom's like, oh my God, again? Like, I have to clean out the hair again from the bathroom. And I was like, I should, like, if you don't clean up every speck of hair, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hey, mom, chill out. You know, and I was always doing it. I loved it too, though. But it was funny. But, like, I never looked at it like something that I could do. It was more of a hobby. When you moved here, though, it wasn't so easy to get someone to take you on, right? Because you didn't have experience. Yeah, people always wanted that experience. But then it wasn't until they saw my, my perseverance, man. I just would go to different barbershops and look and be like, listen, I'll sweep your hair. Just let me just watch you. Kind How of long do you have to do that for? Months. After an eight-hour, ten-hour shift at a cafe, I would go watch Barbara cut hair for like four or five hours, fall asleep waiting and watching them, and then be sent home. Be like, go home, you're tired. That would do it again. And then, but, but, but like, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, but what what drove you? Because that's like real persistence, and like it would be very easy not to. It would be very easy to give up, right? So once I went to after my family talked to me and I said, you know what, maybe I can do it. Let me finish school first. I never ended up finishing school that semester. I went back, and that's when Coke got really bad. And then I went, I dropped out of school because I couldn't attend. And then it was in rehab. After a couple of weeks, I was like, and it just made sense to me. I was like, I came out with that idea that I'm going to cut hair. So that was hungry for that. I was coming for that. I wasn't being held down by addiction anymore. How do you, you know feel me? when you have scissors in your hand? I, just, I guess it's natural now. 
Like, I don't, I don't even think about. It. I'm just trying to think. How do I feel? But I just don't really feel like anything. Because I just think if I had scissors, I'd just be doing my like flip and just holding it. Sometimes I just hold my scissors. It's weird. Like even if I'm just trying to explain something without a haircut, I need to have the scissors in my hand. It's just natural. Cutting someone's hair is quite an intimate act. Like not just because of the physical proximity, but because you're kind of there. Yeah. Together, like it's close. It's it's a funny. I was thinking about before I came to see you that people always tell their hairdressers or barbers things don't they you, you're in that chair today, you a guy came in today he goes a haircut and counseling session like what a deal that's what he told me today i was like yeah it's true though it's very intimate and like some of the things that i do like especially if i'm giving beard trimmers i'm like six inches away from the guy's lips mm. and i'm like this is probably the most interesting way to show absolute manliness right now you know what i mean like this is this is such an ironic situation like a man's grooming another man's beard yet we're like i can smell your freaking your nose breath that's how close <laughs> i am you yeah. know what i mean and like they'll always laugh and make jokes about it but it's intimate dude i guess it's one-on-one so when we're going to ideas and stuff so when in dirty south we're talking a whole bunch of shit just being you know barbershop with all of us engaging into a conversation when it's more private time Amy could be talking to his customer. I'll be talking to my customer. And we'll just discuss various things. Like today, specifically, I was going through a hard time with my, my breakup with this girl in the last eight months. And I was just living in like a, a world of sadness. I just hated stuff. I was just so sad. Just hated the way things turned out. I hated the fact that my heart was so broken. I hated the fact that I couldn't get over it. And then finally, it was like last month. I was like, you know what? Enough's enough. Fake it till you make it. A. B. Always say how happy you are. See, life is great. And I've always, 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 no matter what, anytime anybody asks me how I'm doing, I'm always like, I'm doing phenomenal. Thanks for asking. And it's like, at first, maybe it was hard and I didn't really believe it. But now it's like habitual to the point that if I'm not going to repeat that, or if I don't feel like I'm amazing, then it's weird. You are what you tell yourself, though. I yeah. mean, that is a truism. True. You know, misery begets misery, etc. Obviously, there are cases where you can't control it. But if you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to have a shit day, you're going to have one. True. So that's been like a thing that I've been talking to a lot of my customers about. And like, especially like the counseling thing. It's just, I feel like I've just been like a source of positivity for a lot of the guys coming into my shop. Let's talk about a source of positivity for some of the guys that you cut the hair of on the streets. Your street clients. How did that even happen? Can you- so finally, when, when I was going and just watching them cut hair and just doing what I had to do, and I was just driven to become a barber, I finally got a job at Electric Brand. Summer's like, you know what? I love your perseverance. Come in. Oh, at the shop at Electric? Yeah. So I used to watch her. She was one of the ladies I used to watch. But then i just go home. She would teach me something. I would go home and practice with my friends. Anyways, Summer eventually let me in. And she just Gave you a job? Yeah. And then she's like, you're an apprentice, but just don't tell anyone you are the apprentice. <laughs> But then I just wanted to be like her. I just wanted to be like everybody else. But I just felt like I wasn't there yet. And I was like, I need to keep practicing. I need to keep practicing. So when everyone else was off to have beers and stuff, I'm sober. So I was off to just go cut hair at home. And it got to a point where I just cut everybody's hair that I just couldn't really cut anymore. You didn't know anyone else who needed a haircut? And then I would always pass this homeless guy on the train station on my way to work every morning. And like I'd always like, man, I have to do something for him. So every day I would give him coffees. Every day I would get him a muffin. And then it got to a point I was getting paid $10 an hour. I got shit off. Then sometimes that would happen where I would give him a coffee and a muffin, but he already had one. <laughs> and then he'd be like, no, I'm fine. And I'm like, bro, you just fucking wasted literally half my paycheck. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, for the hour, even more, like a full hour's pay. And I'm getting paid 360 bucks a week. 
and I'm giving like 60 bucks to this guy, 300 bucks left for rent and food for the whole week, plus transport. It's nothing. But I'd still do it. I'm like, what can I give this guy? It's going to be more than just a few dollars. He was still depressed and sad every single day. So I told him one day, do you want a haircut? He goes, his eyes lit up. He's like, yeah, bro. We were talking before about how people have, I don't want to say you're famous, although we were just in a car where someone recognized you, so maybe you are in your way. But people have really responded to this idea of, you're the streets barber, you're cutting the hair of these guys who are homeless. It is a powerful thing. I mean, I've watched videos of you doing it, and actually there's something incredibly moving about it because it's about recognition. It's about recognizing that this is humanity, these are people just like everyone else. And I was reading before I met you just some stuff about homelessness in Australia. And what comes up again and again is just this fact that we, the lucky privileged people with homes, very, very easily just don't see what they don't want to see. So by cutting the hair of someone who hasn't got a roof over their head and doing it in public, it, it makes people feel something. It makes people feel like... Human. You know what I mean? And it's so funny because then a lot of times people are walking by them, people on the streets, like they don't even exist, like they're props. You know, so there's nothing humanizing about that. And then giving someone a gold coin as if that's all they're worth. So to be able to give someone a haircut, it's just like, just because that's something you love. For me, it's selfish because I'm getting, you know, the high. I'm doing what I love and I get to just make someone feel good. You know, the, all the feelings are just crazy amounts for me. But I mean, like, for someone on the other side of that, you know, to be able to feel like they're worthy enough for the attention, for the companionship, for the love. For the care, I think, I don't know. I think that goes a long way. When I used to do my, you know, my week-long drug binges, and I used to just look at myself in the mirror after just, you know, having no dopamine and serotonin in my brain, I remember just crying and just looking at someone that I hated in the mirror because I felt gross, I looked gross, I thought gross. So I can only imagine a lot of people on the streets are probably 10 times worse off. How good does someone feel when they wash their hands or have a shower, you know? So it's just like, imagine getting a dry shampoo, deodorant, aftershave, haircut, and a shave. But the fame thing, it's interesting you say that. Like, you know, I, it was never about being this pseudo-famous barber or having people come up to you and say, thank you for whatever. It was never about that. And it's never going to be that. And last month, I was so close to deleting my Instagram because I had like this huge realization, this epiphany. And... I was at the hair expo with some of like the world's fam most famous barbers and hairdressers around the world. And I was hanging out with like that elite squad because I guess I hate saying this, but I'm saying like I was hanging out with people with status within the, within our industry, but all through social media. But there was a click of us, you know what I mean? And we were just all hanging out because we were like, we all knew each other and we all showed each other so much love because we were there and it was just awesome. Anybody else that you know, was just there, was just there. We didn't really know them. We didn't know what was going on, but you, it's just like as if you've been following these guys, admiring their work and just really looking up to them for years. And then we're all hanging out and they're showing me love. I'm showing them love. It's just, it was just surreal. And then I just realized like every two minutes, somebody was on Instagram just posting, making a video, stunting, you know, showing off. So I was just like, you know what I mean? Like just making, yeah. it, it was just, it was. You're just describing fashion. <laughs> I mean, it was so gross is. though everyone just you know like what's up man just hanging out and then like tagging different people like just constantly trying to show off that they're doing something they're they're looking cool and i was just like what the hell and i looked at it from the outside perspective and i was like 
This sucks. But that's very, very interesting because you are suddenly in the eye of the beast because you're at an expo where people are there to promote and be promoted and where there are people there whose job it is is to promote whatever it is is occurring. This is what the fashion industry is like. I know that you're outside of that, but in my world, this is what it is. This is what currency is and this is what everyone's doing to get ahead and it's... It's also incredibly fake. So, like, what you were just describing is the biggest problem with it, that people can't connect because they're like, sorry, hang on a minute, I've got art direct this moment. I understand the discomfort that people feel with that because it is fake and ludicrous and monstrous, actually. But at the same time, it does a job, doesn't it? Because I like social media, particularly for Instagram, in order to spread an ethical fashion message. So I find that if, if I share something on my Instagram about sustainable fashion then people get inspired and interested and that can make them change their thinking and so i love that how do you balance the message with yeah the... absolutely see see like that's the thing like i didn't really get to that level like i mean at the time so i was just thinking to myself i was like what the hell have i become you shared this story of this guy his hair you cut in march and he was called shag do you remember him yes and you asked him a question and you asked him what makes you happy and he said spending time with my son and the picture was beautiful and then you wrote, sometimes we tend to look at people on the street as second-class citizens or in some cases ignore them completely. But loving your child is, actually I think I wrote this, but loving your child is like this universal thing that everyone can relate to. So on that level, it can just be storytelling. And when it's storytelling, it's super powerful. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And that's something along the lines of what I came to terms with. But going back to the like thing, it's just like, that's what society has basically created as something that's acceptable for serious topics. Mm. Facebook, let's pose this in Syria, refugees are getting killed and they're showing horrific graphic photos for people to scroll, react, and go on to the next person's page while on the toilet taking a shit. Let's be honest. That is the most someone will do. And then what happens? Like my friend said, completely forget about it. Or, I mean, yeah, I relate. However, alternatively, the opposite. Alternatively, you do what I did, which is think, this person who I've never met is doing this really inspiring thing. I'm fascinated. I'm going to make him talk to me because I want to tell people what he's doing. It depends. So, so I wasn't looking at it like that. I was looking at it as like, okay, stun at the hair expo with show-offs and just living in vanity and people just liking things and forgetting about it. I was like, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? Am I doing it? Let me do it. But why do I need to show it off to people on Instagram? Why do I need to do it on Facebook? Why don't I just do it from the sincerity of my heart? Like what it is. I want to keep doing it for what it is. So if you look at my Instagram in the past month and a half since we've spoken, I haven't really posted anybody's story. But Claire, I have gone out, no cameras, one-on-one, -on -one, just me and that person on the street that I've been cutting, just to ensure that I'm not a social media whore because I don't wanna ever lose sight of what I'm doing. And what I'm doing first and foremost is service. And I never wanna lose that because it's not about status, it's about service. It's not about fame, it's about giving back. Fame is all about me, but I'd rather give fame to people that I'm sharing the stories to if they want that. 
Fame will come, status will come, sure, I'll accept it and I've ridden the wave. But since I've gone off and done everything raw and authentic and kept it real, that's when I started feeling so much better within myself. And then I started coming to terms with, as you said, people are deriving inspiration from what I'm doing. So I can't do that. Because if I were to do that, that'd be selfish. I got to look at it like that, but I got to ensure that I'm keeping the integrity of what I'm doing. So when I don't respond back to everybody, even though I want to, I start feeling selfish. If I'm going to start posting it just so I can get that like, I'm going to start feeling selfish. But just because I haven't been posting on Instagram, people are asking me to come to the barbershop. So are you still giving haircuts to the homeless? Yeah, absolutely. Just not posting it. Why? Because I just need to prove to myself that I'm doing it for the right reasons. Because if I'm not, I don't want to do it anymore. But now I've realized and now I've come out even hungrier. And I've got so many things planned. This weekend, two days, my two days off, all of a sudden I got 15 to 20 people at a homeless shelter that were cutting. It started off with a client, the guys who run this shelter. He was getting a cut, spoke to him, organized everything. We've got a huge team coming along. I've got about six or seven barbers and hairdressers coming. We've got another client of mine who's an optometrist who's so excited about giving back. So he's giving free eye exams and glasses to the men and women there. All these haircuts are gonna be given. Then the following day, I'm gonna go film a couple of the stories of some of the people that actually wanna do it as well with my team as well, which I'm so excited about. And so that's my two days off, but it's gonna be covered for that. And I just figured, yeah, maybe I can start sharing stories then. But it's like, that's happening. But then I've also had meetings with these guys from McDonald's, like I told you, you know, like me just going to Ronald McDonald's house give haircuts to the, to the parents who are basically living right beside the hospital day in and day out, making sure their kids are going to be okay or if they're dying or not. You know what I mean? They definitely don't have the time to groom themselves. But if I can do anything for these guys, I'll do it. I don't know how hard it would be to have a child that's sick. I don't have any kids, but I can only imagine. Didn't you just get a new niece? I did. But that's the thing. Like, I never really understood what it's like to really love something. I saw her photo and my heart was just like, what? Naz, what else are you doing? Because you also told me that before we started recording that you were doing some work in prisons too. Yeah, so I've sent a huge proposal and a plea to the prison warden out in maximum security in Footscray in teaching the inmates how to cut hair. Because I was thinking originally just giving haircuts, but I realized that's just like, that was, I guess, not... It was a cool idea, yeah, sure, but it was more of just like a... It felt like just like a cool idea. It wasn't impactful. And I think the cool ideas is done now. It's not about cool ideas, it's about service. Because it's not about fame. It's about giving back. What does it get? Obviously, if you give someone a skill, then that can take them to another place. But what does the act of giving someone a haircut or a trim or a beard trim or whatever it is, what does that give some of your street clients? Confidence. 100% and that's something that is needed a lot. Like I and also humanity, you know? And most important, the allowance to feel clean, you know? And this goes to clean cut, clean start. So if you feel clean, hopefully you're gonna think clean. Clean is a loaded word for you. 100%. And I'm hoping the same for them. Not everybody on the street is a drug addict, so they need to be clean from that, but they can, they, they can think in a clean way in other ways of life, you know? And they don't have to be on the street anymore. Maybe you can start thinking clean about themselves. But also comes back to that thing of, I know that mirrors are probably in short supply on the streets, but being able to look at yourself and mm-hmm. feel 
stupid. Think or at ease with looking at yourself. Thing. I mean, how, how is your relationship with the mirror these days? Oh, man, I can't stop looking at myself. Damn. So, Have you seen this eye candy? I get a root canal every time I see myself. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I mean, like, I look at myself nowadays, and I don't look at myself in hatred anymore. I love myself. And I think that's the only way you can really love others, is if you truly love yourself. You know, I found myself finally. After many, many years, I'm trying to find myself. People can go to India or Europe backpacking. Well, you came to Melbourne. No. Quite far. I didn't. That's not how, well, I guess, but that's not how I found myself. I found myself because I lost myself in others. Beautiful thing. It's the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in others. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm curious too. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you